you. I know folks are going to continue to trickle in, but we will get started uh, right on time in just a minute because we want to max out our hour together. This is a, a very great, a very interesting topic. And um, just to highlight two other things coming up this week, we have a session with Professor David Shaivitz, uh, who's talking about Till Death Do Us Part, Family Life and the Afterlife in Jewish Thought. Has to do with things like, will I be with my loved ones in Olam Haba in the world to come? And he's gonna look at some of those mystical sources um, in our tradition. We also have um, the opportunity to learn with a Jewish community in Johannesburg, South Africa on Thursday. Uh, if you wanna learn some Parsha with me and with them, good chance to continue to build our global uh, learning uh, uh, community together. So friends, today we are delighted to have a, um, a wonderful educator calling in from Israel. Do you call it calling in? Is it still calling in or am I using the long lingo? Uh, dialing in, calling in <laughs> uh, from, from, from the Holy Land. I was very pleased to say that five, five million... Zooming in, zooming in. Zooming in, zooming in. Yes, zooming in. Uh, zooming in. Very pleased to see that five million Israelis as of today had been uh, vaccinated. Uh, hopefully more and more progress. And we're here with Rabbanit Karen Miller-Jackson, who is a certified Mora Lahalacha, Jewish educator and writer who teaches at Matan. If you don't know about Matan, check it out, M-A-T-A-N. She is the creator of uh, Power Parsha. Power Parsha, a brief Devar Torah disseminated weekly via social media. Very powerful. Uh, I always enjoy it host of the Eden Center podcast, Building Ourselves Through the Parsha, if you want to check out that podcast, and founder of Kivun L'Sherut, a guidance program for religious girls before Sherut Le'umi, or army service. She lives in Ranana, Israel. Ranana, Israel. It's, it's the Scottsdale of Israel, the Scottsdale of Israel. She's over there. So if you move to Israel, you can move to Ranana, and um, you should have a wonderful time over there in Ranana. So, uh, so, for, so thank you for being with us. And this is a very timely topic. People are talking about this in the liberal world, in the conservative world. Everyone's uh, accusing everyone of canceling. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's a very hot topic. I love this title. If Rashi had Facebook, Jewish perspectives on cancel culture and online shaming. We have 59 minutes together, friends. And I'm gonna hand over the, uh, hand over the floor, hand over the Zoom. To Robin Eats, Karen Miller Jackson. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. And it is such, it is so wonderful to be here with all of you. Um, I uh, I've been getting to know Rabbi Shmuley virtually, although we have so many ties, friends, teachers in common that it's uh it's really um just so wonderful to have these connections. I think it's been a really, really hard year. I know, no matter where you are, and and in particular, one one of the it's hard to talk about nice things that have happened during this year. But uh, to focus on that for a moment, um, one of the things that's been <clears throat> incredibly special is that I've been managing to teach and interact with students in different places, and so I have one class where I have students. It's a through Matan, an Israeli institution. Normally I'd be teaching just a few women here in 
in my hometown, but I'm teaching, uh, women are joining all over Israel and I have students in, um, in uh, Johannesburg and in New Zealand, and it's really quite amazing. So this is, um, if we can focus on some of the positives and big wins, this is really something which hopefully we'll keep going with in the future. So thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, particularly fortuitous that I've been asked to speak here with you today. I know that you are all, you are, this community is very, um, uh, gives many opportunities to women to speak about Torah. That's not to be taken for granted. And today we're, I don't know uh, how much it's at uh, the forefront of your social media, but there's a lot of talk about International Women's Day. And so it's my pleasure to, to be here with you. Um, okay, so I am in a moment, I'm going to share my screen. And uh, I don't know you, I like to know my students a bit. And so if at any point I'm going too fast, too slow, um, you want more, just let me know and I can try and multitask as much as possible while teaching. Uh, okay, so here we're going to talk about um, online, uh, online shaming and cancel culture. What are Jewish perspectives? Now, the, the funny question about this is we're going to be looking mainly at sources from the Torah and from the Talmud, which were written many, 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 many hundreds of years ago. And so and so what could they possibly have to say to us about um, this modern creation and innovation of social media? In fact, what I found was completely incredible and surprising when I did this research, which is uh, evolving over the past few years, it constantly has an incredible resonance. And that's been one of the greatest lessons for me. And so I'm going to um, share my screen now and we will learn the sources together. Uh, before we jump into our Jewish sources, I just want to frame the conversation a little bit. I'm sure that this is a topic that, like me, you have been reading much about and thinking much about. Um, how do we want this to, uh, for ourselves? How, how much do we want to spend time on social media? Um, it has incredible positives and incredible negatives, um, and a lot in between. And for instance, one of the ways I connected with Rev Shmuley is through social media. What an incredible positive. On the other hand, we know, if you look at this uh, image that I have in front of you, you can see my screen, right? Give me a thumbs up. Excellent. Um, here we have an article from 2016. It feels like <laughs> another lifetime ago, um, where it is highlighting, the Wall Street Journal highlighted in previous election, um, people who were generally liberal and generally conservative and featured, and we're not going to get political, we're not going to get political today, hopefully. Um, really, it's a conversation to be having no matter what your views are and, and, and what you think. Um, but what's, what we're seeing is that there's a greater and greater polarization among people people. Um, so people who tend to be more liberal are becoming more and more liberal. People who tend to be more conservative are becoming more and more conservative. And one of the reasons that's happening is that we are tending to follow only the people who we're interested in listening to. And it's becoming an echo chamber. There are many new words in our vocabulary that, that this uh, conversation has really brought us. And so this is just one example of that. 
Um, <laughs> just this week, we had in the news the story of, of Dr. Seuss's books. Uh, Dr. Seuss's books, my youngest child is now 10. And so, you know, it was, it was, we had to discuss it at the, at the, the Shabbat table. It was a big discussion among my children, my teenagers. Um, should these books be taken? Should these books be taken off the shelf or not? And um, was this a cancel culture? issue or not. We don't have the answers, but we know that the conversation is happening. And um, here we have J.K. Rowling. I don't know how much it was um, discussed. I don't know if she saw it in America. My husband's British and I'm in Israel. And so we were fascinated by, um, by, what, was, by what was happening. Certainly, um, it's perfect. As it, when I talk about cancel culture here, I want to say, um, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have different views and shouldn't disagree. And shouldn't have and and shouldn't really strongly disagree with um, with what J.K. Rowling got into a lot of trouble for discussing um, regarding transgender people, and and yet I think that there was a um, the the fact that there was this cancel culture which came which was expressed so much where people decided to cancel her um, was uh, was something controversial and something we have to look at as whether that's an ideal of some of a way to interact how do we want our communication to be um, I of course following that was a Harper magazine uh, this is just a little content text, a Harper Magazine article, a letter by many authors um, criticizing the idea of cancel culture in general um, and standing up against it. Uh, we also had, this is going back to 2013, this, uh, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Justine Sacco story, uh, where a woman got on a plane in 2013, a long flight, remember getting on planes? <laughs> <laughs> haven't done that in a while. Um, and she tweeted some really unsavory and unpleasant things about the person sitting next to her and the people she was interacting with. And it was horrible. It was horrible to read. You think, I don't necessarily, I can't, I can't believe she would talk that way. And she tweeted these things. She had very few friends on Twitter. She landed 10 hours later and she had been shamed online to the point where 10 years later, she's still discussing with reporters how much it ruined her life. And so we see that there's on the one hand a need for, we see that there's a need for um, debate and disagreements and, and interaction. And there's people who we hope to influence, um, but how do we go about it? And when, if ever, should we be using cancel culture and online shaming is, um, is a big question. Of course, these questions are also philosophical for those of you who are uh, who are interested in the philosophy behind um, behind these issues. Um, social media has had tremendous positives. So you see here we have the story of a Aguna, a woman who could not receive a religious divorce. I won't get into all these issues, but if you're interested in the, the topic, you're welcome to search online. Um, and a social media campaign helped free this woman. We know that there are people around the world living in countries that are not democracies where social media has been their saving lifeboat because they've been able to share with the world what they're experiencing. So we have also tremendous positives. But for those of you who are raising children or grandchildren or who teach young, young people, work with young people, we also know that there's great, unfortunately, tremendous levels of depression and mental health issues among teenagers. And if you uh, allow me, before we get into the Jewish sources, which I promise we have 50 more minutes to do, 
I'd like to share with you, coming from Israel, a minute of this song. This is one of the joys of Zoom, uh, which is, you'll, you're not going to understand the words unless you have great Hebrew, but you'll get the idea what social media is doing to our young people in terms of their view of themselves each day. How do they feel when they open up Instagram and see all the perfect pictures of their perfect friends? So I'll just play this for you for one moment. Uh-oh, don't know if this has never happened to me before that it doesn't work. Okay, I will send the link. <laughs> I apologize. Okay, we're gonna jump into our sources. I will send you the link on the chat, I apologize. It's a wonderful song. So now let us jump in together to learning. Already going back to the story of creation, uh, the creation of humankind, we hear that human beings are created and they are called nefesh chaya, okay? They're called a living being. Now the truth is animals are also called living beings. And, and um, I know which community I'm talking to here. <laughs> so, so that is a very, that is, we see that there's a, there's a, um, significance, a super important significance here being given to the phrase living being. But when it comes to humankind, the creation of humankind, our biblical commentaries explain that what makes humankind a living being, as opposed to animals who are also living beings, what differentiates us, says Rashi, the famous biblical commentator, that he was granted to him understand or her understanding and speech. So human beings received understanding and speech. Um, the Aramaic translation, there's an Aramaic translation of the Bible by a, uh, by a commentary called Unculus, <laughs> if you could say that. And he, um, he says a similar thing. He says that humankind was created as a speaking spirit in the Aramaic, ruach memalala, okay? Um, it's a, humankind is a speaking spirit. So we see that from the creation of humankind, one of the distinguishing factors is that human beings have the ability to speak. And how we use that, how we use the words and our speech is, is not insignificant. It's a part, it's part and parcel of how we were created and it has tremendous significance and meaning. So now with the creation story in, in the back of our minds, I'd like to take you on a journey through the book of Bamidbar. We're going to have glimpses into the narrative of the book of Numbers um, the book, it's called the Book of Numbers in English, and Hebrew Bamidbar, of course, means in the desert. Bamidbar, but it's the same Hebrew word, midbar and medaber, okay? Desert and speaking. And so what happens incredibly is that in this midbar, in this desert, which is filled with silence, um, we have a problem with dibur, with speech. And this book, um, in this book, we have a narrative of the breakdown of communication. And this is a great place to look, to talk about, and to see what Jewish sources think about how communication tends to break down and what's, what's problematic about that. We're also going to see a tikkun, a fixing of that. So don't worry, it won't be all negative. Um, so in source four, 
Uh, we hear in, in chapter 11 of the book of Numbers, until chapter 11, things are going well. The Jewish people are traveling through the desert. But in chapter 11, we hear about a group of people among the Israelites who start to be rabble rousers, who cause trouble. And they are called the mitonanim, the moaners, okay? The murmurers. And it says in, um, in, this, uh, in source four, the people were as murmurers speaking evil in the ears of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of God burnt among them and devoured in the uttermost part of the camp. Okay, so, so we're not gonna get deep into the number of stories we're gonna look at, but we're just gonna get a sense of what's happening and what the interpreters are reading into this text. So there's this group of people who are causing trouble. They are complaining. And you can feel already in my, in my reading of this verse that they don't seem to have a good reason at this point to be complaining. And so Rashi teaches that they were actually just trying to cause trouble. They were, they were trying to stir up trouble in the camp of the Israelites. So Rashi explains based on two words which are emphasized in our verse, mit onanim. He says the word mit onanim denotes people who seek a pretext. They are trying to separate themselves from God from the, they're trying to, to cause a rift between the Israelites and God. And the second thing is that it says that they spoke evil in the ears of God, very unusual language. And Rashi explains they wanted, they wanted their, their um, troublemaking to reach God's ears. They were trying to stir things up. It's like a call for attention, but they were trying to um, they were trying to to annoy and to anger God, and so we see that um, that they are they are speaking in a way that's going to get people all riled up. Okay, so this is the first, this is the beginning. From this point in the narrative, there is a continuation of this people who are constantly trying to have a more negative effect on the community of Israel in the desert. And so that's stage one. In the next section, we have, so there's several stories that happen in the book of Numbers. We have, maybe some of you can shout out, we have, um, the, we have the story of the spies who of course go into Canaan and try to scout out the land and they come back and 10 out of the 12 have very negative things to say about the land and they influence the entire people. So as opposed to in our last slide with the mitonanim, the murmurers, the complainers, the moaners, they only affected a small group. We see that there's a spreading effect where now the, when the spies go, they have a, um, a big effect on, um, on the whole people. Between the story of the murmurers and the spies, we also have a story of Miriam speaking badly about her brother Moshe. And so the biblical Midrash, the biblical commentaries explain, why are these stories put together? And it says here in this source, why is this section dealing with the spy, spies put in juxtaposition with the section dealing with Miriam's punishment? The answer, to show the grievousness of the spy's sin, because she was punished on account of the slander which she uttered against her brother. And these sinners witnessed it and they did not take a lesson from her. So now we have an even greater problem. It's not just that the, murmur, the murmurers who caused negative a feeling amongst the camp were punished. We then have the story of Miriam speaking about her own brother. She may have had good intentions. We can't get too deep into the story just now. But 
the spies should have learned from her story, says the Midrash. They should have seen that speaking negatively and speaking um, without good reason, speaking negatively, they should have seen was dangerous. And now as public figures going and having a certain responsibility, they came back, they're supposed to be the leaders, they come back and not only do they, do they not speak positively, they speak negatively in a way that affects the entire people. So how, do, how does that happen? So there's a fantastic interpretation of a medieval commentary on the Torah called Nachmanides, who explains. Now you'll remember that when they came back, the spies, you may remember the story, um, they say, there was some, it, it was, it, this was some country, the fruit was amazing, the cities were built up, but they also were saying that it's so powerful there, there's no chance that we can win. And there's no chance we can enter the country and defeat them. And the word that they use, um, we don't have the Hebrew here, but in verse 28, the word that they use is how, how be it, okay? Um, they say Ephes. In Hebrew, they say Ephes. So in source eight, Nachmanides explains that their major sin was that they shut down the conversation. They did not allow for conversation. So in source eight, he says, they spoke only the truth. The Nachmanides, Nachmanides is asking, Ramban is asking, what, what was so bad about what the spies did? They were told to spy out the land and that's what they did. But he explains that they, they went and they spoke truth. So it seems at first like their punishment was very unfair. Of course, the punishment afterwards was that these, this generation will have to roam in the desert and not go into the land. So he says, at first they seemed to speak the truth. They spoke only the truth and answered what they were commanded and asked to report. They were asked to report about how the people are, about how the land is, about how the cities are fortified. And that's exactly what they answered. However, says Nachmanides, their resha'am, he says, their wickedness was in the word ephes, in the word, which means in modern Hebrew, zero. They spoke in a way which, which, um, which indicated impossibility that there was no way that we were gonna be able to go in. They shut down, there wasn't even a conversation. They shut down the conversation. And so we see that in the book of Numbers, we have story after story, which is emphasizing this question of what's going on, what this, this negative spiral of dissent where people are starting to have negative feelings are starting to criticize. And the criticism is often coming from a place of, sometimes coming from a, a place of not good reason. And it spreads and it spreads to the point where it's also not allowing for any communication and any fixing of the situation. So we see this in the murmurers. We see this with Miriam. We see this with, um, with the spies who should have learned from Miriam. And now we see it in one more story. Um, before we move on from the book of Numbers, we see it in the story of Korach. Korach is a famous story uh, where he and his crew uh, criticize the um, leadership of Moshe, okay? And again, we can't get too much into the details of the story, but we know that he's critical of Moshe's leadership and um, he makes some really strong claims against Moshe. He's unhappy and he, he wants a change. And, um, and so he has a group, he has a community who follows him and he gathers them up. Now we see in the story that their claim is not a good claim. And in the end, 
they are punished because they are not responsive to Moshe and they do not, uh, they do not, uh, they're not, it's a, this criticism is not coming from the right place. And the way they are punished is they, anyone remember the story? They are, they, they, the ground opens up and swallows them. Now, why is this important? Because we're going to see what the Midrash does. Now, often in, in the Bible, we have imagery, which, which really fits with what's going on. Um, it's, it's really a very literary book, the Bible. And so here we see that in this Midrash, this is exactly what's being emphasized. The Midrash says, here we go to the English. With all these words, Moshe tried to appease Korah. So the Midrash explains that Moshe understood that Korah was upset and had a claim against him. And he wanted to talk to him about it. He wanted to discuss it. But you do not find that he gave him any answer. But Korach refused to come. Moshe calls Korach to come, okay? And he doesn't come. Now the Midrash explains why. The Midrash says, because he was clever in his wickedness, Korach. He said to himself, if I answer him, I know that since he has great wisdom, he will now overwhelm me with his words and to seduce me into being reconciled with him against my will. It is therefore better that I not respond to him. When Moses saw that there was nothing to be gained with him, he withdrew from him. So, so here in the first paragraph, we see that Moses wanted to engage with Korach. I'm sure they had a lot to disagree about, but he tried to discuss the issues which Korach was upset about, but Korach refused to come. The Midrash builds the character here, builds the character of Korach and says that he didn't want to get into a debate because he knew he would lose. And Potentially, this is obviously the, the, the um, literary characterization of Korach in the Midrash. But what he's, what he's emphasizing is that Korach, what this is emphasizing, that Korach wouldn't speak. There was no communication. He refused to speak. I have my view. You have your view. We're not going to talk. I don't want to talk to you. And that is, again, another peg in the very down, big downward spiral within the book of Numbers of what is happening. Um, Korach's people, Korach's assistants were called Datan and Aviram, okay? And the same thing happened with them, the Midrash explains. Moses sent to Datan and Abiram, and they too persisted in their wickedness and did not care to answer him. And they said, we will not come up. So here the Midrash does something very powerful. It says, when Datan and Aviram say to Moses, we will not come up, meaning we won't come up the hill to speak to you. Um, the Midrash understands this as figurative and says, they say we will not come up. Their very mouths, here we're talking so much about the speech, they are punished through their mouths. Their very mouths tripped up these wicked men for a covenant is made with lips. So they died and went down to the nethermost Sheol, okay? After they'd gone down. So what happened? They said, we will not come up. Well, not only did they not come up, they went down. And so, and so the speech here is very powerful. We see that this, this inability, this, this, um, this, this complete um, refusal to speak um, results in, um, first of all, we have to quash the rebellion because it was coming from a place of negativity and without good claim. And had they had good claim, presumably they would have come and spoken and made their claim and said, let's figure out an arrangement works, works better than this but they wouldn't even speak to Moshe. So we have yet another story in Bamidbar of the breakdown of communication, of, um, of animosity, of anger. Of, we see that the lack of speaking causes people to be more distant, more polarized. 
And so this is very similar to um, some of the things that we see today happening um, in the world of social media, which is affecting our real world, um, our live world. There's a great story. We're about to finish our, um, our section on the book of Numbers. But there's a great story, which is a story at the end of the book of Numbers, which is what I like to call a tikkun, a fixing um, of what has come before. And appropriate for International Women's Day, that fixing comes through the voice of, uh, of women, of uh, five girls, five sisters. They're not girls at the time, they're women. And, um, and of course, in partnership with the leadership, Moshe. So in chapter 27 of the book of Numbers, we hear about these women called the daughters of Tzlovchad. Um, elsewhere, we hear their names, their names are given. And what happens with them is that they have a claim. At this point, the women were not allowed to get an inheritance in the land of Israel. Um, the people were about to go into the land of Israel and land was inherited, remember we're talking about ancient biblical times, by the sons. Now in this family, they had a lot of girls. <laughs> and so um, Benot Slavchad, the daughters of Slavchad, um, decide this isn't okay. And they are incredibly, um, we'll call them quite Zionist. They want to have some land. They want to have property. And so in the land of Israel, so they come to Moses and they say, and here, look at the language. Interesting in the Hebrew, you hear it more. I, I brought the Hebrew here to show you. Um, it says the daughters of Slavchad came, came forward. It actually means they came close, Vatikravna. They, they came close. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a word which appears a lot in Judaism. Um, um, they're, they're coming close, they're, they're approaching. It's so different from the voice of we're trying to separate, we're trying to distance, we're trying to polarize. Here they come close. They're, they're, they're about to argue and make a case of something that they wanna stand up for, which is just, but they do it. We hear already in the language of the biblical text from a place of lekarev, of let's work on this together and join together and fix this problem. And then we hear um, the story is that they come to Moses and Moses has to uh, consult with God. And God says to Moses in verse seven, can benot dovrot, the daughters of Slofchad speak rightly? So here again, the emphasis is on the speech, but at the end of the book of Numbers, it's positive speech. Okay, the daughters of Slavchad have made their case in a peaceful and in a wise and, um, and uh, um, I don't wanna say conciliatory, but they've made a good case and they've done it in a respectful way. And this is what is effective. And this is exactly what um, the commentaries see in the story, that it's, it's perfectly okay. Look at, if you contrast this with Korach, each one had a claim on Moshe, each one had a claim against him. But the daughters of Slavchad's claim had, had, had validity um, and was coming from a place of not necessarily complete self-interest, but rather changing things for the better in the world. And so, um, so you might call them the first feminists, <laughs> the daughters of Slavchad. Um, and here they come to Moses and they say, and, and it works. And, and God says to them, they speak rightly, okay? They, they made a fair claim. Their words have been, um, 
have been praised not only by the leader, but by God. Uh, and so this is, this is an example of um, using the communication, of fixing the communication, of fixing the communication to fix the world. So, um, so that takes us uh, through, if we look, if we really just see that these stories in the book of Numbers, um, we, we see a journey through what can happen, the negatives that can happen with communication and how there can be attempts to fix things in a more positive way. I'm going to switch gears now um, and we're going to look at some Jewish law. So, so what we've done until now is we've looked at biblical sources um, for, and some of the interpretation of the Bible for what, what are sort of more ideas and um, interpretive approaches. And it's, it's really nice. But when, it, when push comes to shove, what is, what is the scope of what, what Jewish law has to say about something like online shaming? Um, and so that's what we're going to look at now. Um, I, I, if anyone, I like to interact. So if anyone has a significant question about numbers, you can feel free to ask, or we can wait another 15, 20 minutes. And then when we're through all the sources, um, please feel free to, uh, to ask me then. Um, Okay, so now we are uh, looking at source 12 here, and we are turning to, um, to the book of Leviticus. Um, in the middle of the book of Leviticus, which deals with a lot of things related to the temple, um, we, we, we have a chapter, or more than a chapter, which really gets into issues of interpersonal interaction and uh, commandments. And there often in the same verse, you can have things which seem to have nothing to do with each other. And it's a big question, what's going on there? What is the connection here? So we have this interesting command in the book of Leviticus. And now I hope to hear a little bit of your voices. Um, what is going on here? It says, okay, it says, Lo tisna bilvavecha. Do not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Okay? You should reprove your kinsmen. You should rebuke your kinsmen. And then, and you see I've broken the verse into three, and then it says, however, you mustn't incur guilt because of him. Okay, the, the Hebrew language, of course, in its, uh, this is something that's being worked on here in Israel, but the Hebrew language, when it speaks in individual, speaks in masculine. So the translation here is, uh, is in masculine, but let's um, not focus on that now, but we'll focus on the words. The words here, which are saying, don't hate your kinsfolk. Um, you should rebuke your kinsmen and you should not incur guilt because of him. So how do you understand these three things? Do you see any connection between them? Does it make sense that they come together? I think it's very logical to, to see you can rebuke your kinsmen without hating them. And those two like fit together really well for me, but the incurring no guilt because of him is where I'm like having a harder time fitting that one in. Excellent. Uh, wait, remind me your name? Michaela. Michaela. So Michaela is saying something great here. Um, and in fact, she's very in sync with many of the biblical interpreters who saw a connection which seemed to make a lot of sense that, okay, um, you shouldn't hate your kinsfolk in your heart. 
but you should reprove your kinsmen. Now, what's, what's the connection between the two? Um, often we wanna help people we love. And now we know anyone who's uh, read about relationship coaching and psychology knows that um, you know, telling people to change doesn't usually make them change. But <laughs> when, we, when we wanna share feedback, um, we wanna do it from a place of love and not from a place of hate. And, um, and we also have to search ourselves. The, the verse is really um, emphasizing that we must search our motives here when we're telling people to do things differently. Um, we have to search our hearts and see where is this coming from? What place is this coming from? So yes, I completely agree with you. And how do we understand this third element of to not incur guilt? Um, anyone wanna add anything before we go on to the interpretation? Well, I, one possible read, one possible read is that if I don't take an appropriate form of feedback, then I will come to take an inappropriate form of feedback. Uh, you're saying the person is rebuking. Right. Nice. Okay. So, right. So certainly, yes, it could get, it, maybe it's important to get this out of your heart, right? Don't let the hate fester. And in fact, that is one of the ways that the Talmud understands this, this verse. Um, you have a wise rabbi. <laughs> so let's look at Rashi. Rashi says, and do not bear sin on account of him. What does this mean? Do not incur guilt because of the person who you are rebuking. So Rashi explains, and this is a beautiful phrase in Hebrew, lo talbinat panav You mustn't whiten his face in public or her face in public, meaning we mustn't shame them to the point that we bear sin, okay? So it's okay to rebuke, but we have to be careful. There's already in the verse, in the interpretation of the verse, we see a distinction between shaming in private and shaming in public, okay? So already that's one of the things which is coming out here. We have to be very careful when it's in public and we have to, we have to watch closely what effect are our words having, which I'll already jump in here and say is not something you're going to be able to see very easily on social media, right? You're not going to be able to see a person's reaction and their facial expression when you rebuke them and how, what color their face is turning. So we see these, these, these verses are, are um, already resonating. So that we're going to look at two um, sections from the Talmud, uh, which, which talk about rebuke. In the first one, we're all over the Bible today, so you're getting like a whole little survey. In the first one, there's a story about Abraham. Abraham makes a covenant with a foreign king called Avimelech. And when he makes this, um, when he makes this agreement with him, he actually, this is the first instance in the Bible of the word tochacha, rebuke, okay? Um, and it says there, uh, so it says that Abraham rebuked Avimelech. And the Midrash talks about rebuke in the following way. It says, Rabbi Yossi ben Rabbi Hanina said, rebuke leads to love. Now, who in the modern world thinks this, right? Rebuke leads to love. Um, as it says in the book of Proverbs, a wise man and he will, uh, a rebuke a wise man and he will love you. I don't love to be rebuked, but okay. <laughs> and this is the view of Rabbi Yossi ben Hanina who said, Love unaccompanied by rebuke is not love, okay? And so here we have something very powerful being said. On the one hand, we want to, this, this Midrash is saying that rebuke leads to love, okay? Which is hard to accept. 
On the other hand, it's also saying love without any rebuke is not true love. And so here it's characterizing this relationship between Abraham and this non-Jewish king as a good relationship. And it's saying that Abraham couldn't have an agreement with him before first dealing with something that was festering in his heart. It was, so he, way before the commands is given to rebuke others and not hate others, he's already practicing this, Abraham, and saying, I want this to be, I want the air to be clear. I want this relationship to be good. And so I'm going to call out the bad behavior. By the way, I forgot to mention the reason he was being rebuked is that um, the people under this king, Abimelech, some of the people had been digging wells in an area that was not allowed. So they were doing something a little, a little, uh, a little unethical. And so Abraham sees this and says, we, this has to stop. And he rebukes and the rebuke is meant to lead to love. Okay. <laughs> We're going to see that, um, that this topic uh, goes through an interesting um, development, okay? If until now it seemed in the Bible, at the time of the Bible, if it seemed acceptable to rebuke, we're going to see that now in the time of this Talmud, hundreds of years later, um, it's already being questioned whether rebuke whether rebuking someone, whether telling someone off or, or, or criticizing them has any positive value whatsoever. So we see this already in the Midrash, we saw that there was, um, it was very positive, right? That when Abraham does it, it has positive outcomes. Uh, we saw in the Pasuk, in the verse in, in Leviticus, that there's some hesitation, okay? There's clearly some hesitation because the verse is saying, um, you, you have to let out the hatred, you have to say something so that it doesn't fester inside you so that the hate doesn't grow. But at the same time, we don't want to, we don't want the rebuke to go too far. Rebuke mustn't ever go too far. And so let's see what the Talmud, um, uh, the first real major work of Jewish law does with this, does with this dilemma. And it says as follows, in source 15, it was taught, Rabbi Tarfun said, I wonder, now we have a, the rabbis discussing, how does one rebuke? I wonder whether there is anyone in this generation who accepts reproof, okay? So he himself is saying, who is capable of being criticized really? Who likes to be criticized? For if one says to a person, remove that now this was Talmudic example. So remove the toothpick from between your eyes. Okay, I don't know who's putting a toothpick between their eyes. He would answer, the person would answer back, remove that beam from between your eyes, okay? So what's happened in this interaction? Rabbi Tarfon has said, anyone who comes and says to me, take that, you know, you, you, know you, you have to fix that thing on your face. I'm gonna say right back, well, you fix that thing on your face, right? No one's gonna say, oh, thank you. That was really great. I'm gonna accept that with love. And that makes me love you more. Rabbi Tarfon is acknowledging that criticizing someone um, is going to have a negative effect. And not only that, what's happened in this interaction? First, he gets criticized for a toothpick, but the comeback is remove that beam, okay? It's gotten bigger, it's escalated, it's, um, it's, it's gotten worse, okay? And so now small criticism is gonna lead to bigger criticism, to bigger criticism, to bigger criticism. And that's certainly gonna lead to negative feeling. The next rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah says, I wonder if there is one in this generation, a person in this generation who knows how to give, who, how to reprove someone, how to criticize. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri says, I call heaven and earth to witness for myself. 
that often was Akiba, here we're talking about Rabbi Akiba, punished through me because I used to complain against him before our teacher. And all the more he showered love upon me to make true what has been said, reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee, reprove, reprove a wise man and he will love thee. So we hear in this, now, now we see a real, I hope you can see the transition that in the Bible, it seems to be acceptable to give rebuke, to, to give uh, strong criticism to people, not too much, but it's acceptable, especially they believed that it led to some amount of love and enhancing of a relationship. By the time of the Talmudic era, we see that the rabbis are really hesitant about this. And the only rabbi who seems to be able to take rebuke well is Rabbi Akiva, who was one of the holiest rabbis of all time, and who of course is known for, for saying that the most important thing in the entire Torah is to love your fellow, um, your fellows, your fellow Jew, your fellow, right? So to love everyone. So Rabbi Akiva may have had a very special ability to accept rebuke, to feel love when someone gives him rebuke, but your average person is not going to, according to the other rabbis, is not going to necessarily feel that way. So we see now this tension and, um, and, uh, and we see that this, we see that the Talmud is already questioning whether this should, how much should this be, should this be done, um, whether it should be done at all. And so when we talk about online shaming, this is something which uh, truly resonates because certainly, and I, I know I don't really, I think you're all very familiar with the issues, but what these sources can do is they can enrich us and help us think, do, when I open up Facebook or Twitter or whatever we're on, <laughs> um, do I want to, what do I want to say? How do I want to speak? Um, would I say this thing if I saw the person in person? And these sources are pushing us to think, what not only, what, what is the purpose of, of speaking badly or negatively about this thing if it's for a quality purpose, like the daughters of Slochad, who had a good, ethical, just claim to, and really were working to change things, then it seems that there is a good basis for doing that. But just to criticize someone else, how good is that going to be for the world and for relationships? Um, and these are just things and sources to make us more aware of these issues. Uh, one final area of sources, which I want to share with you, is also from the book of Leviticus, from the same uh, section, which, um, which teaches us the uh, command, uh, two significant things, the command about Lashon Hara, not to speak badly and slander others. Um, and the other one, which is Lo Ta'amod, Lo Ta'amod, do not stand idly by. Okay, and these are, uh, and I know I'm speaking to a community of activists, a community of doers, and so uh, I know that these are these are commandments which you're familiar with and which um, which particularly speak to you. Um, interesting, just an interesting fact um, here in Israel. I'm always blown away by the sort of the language, um, the language. Lashon, the truth is lashon hara and lo tamod. So lashon hara, which means slander. There's a law an actual, you know, the regular uh, secular law, we're not talking about Jewish law now, the law in Israel of slander, of slander is called Lashon Hara, based on this, of course. And the law, what we call in America, the, right, the Good Samaritan law, I believe it's called, right, not to stand idly by when you see someone being hurt. 
That is called lo ta'amod in Israel, right? The law not to stand idly by. And so there's something very beautiful about using the Torah to bring these things to modern um, general law uh, is a beautiful thing and seeing these things applied. So we see in this verse that we also have a command not to stand idly by. So until now we've been saying, careful who you criticize, careful who you shame, right? But at the same time, we also believe we want to not stand idly by when someone's getting hurt, when we wanna do something. At the same time, <laughs> we have a command not to slander. So how do we balance this basket of, on the one hand, um, we should criticize bad behavior, um, we shouldn't let uh, someone get hurt. And on the other hand, we have to be careful not to shame people in public, not to lahalbin panim, not to whiten their faces in public, and not to slander. How do we balance these two things? So we have a suggestion, a, a, a instruction by, um, by a wonderful rabbi who I'm sure you've heard of, the uh, Chafetz Chaim, who is a rabbi from the 19th century who was really the first rabbi to deal with putting together in writing a significant amount of, um, uh, of a guidebook and laws regarding how we speak. And this is something again, which still has resonance today. So he, he discusses what happens when you're aware of an injustice happening in the world. And the question there is, when are you allowed to share this injustice with the world? If you know, if, if you witnessed specifically someone doing something wrong, should you take that? Should you take that to the so? Should you take that to social media? He didn't have social media, but should you? And I think what he says here can be applied today. Um, so he says the person is permitted to speak out publicly about the actions of the one who did wrong, but on several conditions. And he gives a bunch of conditions. The ones that are relevant for us are that either either you witness the act of wrongdoing, not just heard about it as a rumor, right, from a friend from a friend, but or someone shared it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you really verified, okay? So either you witnessed it or you seriously verified it. And next, you try to, perhaps you know the person, you try to rebuke them gently um, and, uh, and get them to maybe do a tikkun, a fix of the situation. But if not, says the Chafetz Chaim, it may be made public. As long as the person is making it public for the right reasons, not out of hatred, not just to shame, but out of a desire to make the world better, to do a better, to make the, to make the situation better and to have a tikkun for this actress done and to make sure this person does not hurt others. And so these things are, are really a case by case. I think we see here that, um, that the, that the uh, sources don't give us a black and white answer, but they allow for um, a lot of leeway for when it would make sense to that online shaming and things like this. In general, we don't want to spend our lives with engaging in such negativity on the other, and it has an effect, like in the book of Numbers, it had a terrible effect on the nation. At the same time, we want to speak up for what's right and we need to protect the vulnerable. And so there are times when there's a necessary use um, and each person needs to use their own moral compass and, uh, and think about how to do it in a way which, um, which brings about um, more safety, peace, and, and good relations. Um, so I'll just close with a beautiful uh, story in Talmud about two rabbis who always disagreed with each other, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And uh, the Talmud famously says, 
that even though um, they disagreed, um, uh, often the Jewish law was decided uh, in the name of Beit Hillel, according to Hillel, Beit Hillel. And the Talmud asks why, and it says it's because Beit Hillel, when they would teach Jewish, when they would teach their students, they would always teach the opinions of the other rabbis of Beit Shammai, okay? And they would first teach the, 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 the opinion with which they disagreed. And then they would teach their own opinion. Um, and because they were showing their students that there's value in learning about the other side of the argument, the other opinion, and in listening to the other side of the opinion. That was the um, group of people which God decided um, Jewish law should be in accordance with. And I think that there's something very powerful in this idea of can we listen? Can we, can we listen to things we disagree with? Can we still have these conversations? Um, and so I don't want to take up too much time. I'll leave some time for uh, discussion. And I also uh, am happy to talk about this and other things. Um, so thank you so much. Amazing, amazing. So if it's okay from you, I would love to hear from a few folks at once and then me, um, we can hear from them and then give you the closing uh, responses if that's all right. With pleasure. Okay, friends, feel free to unmute yourself with questions or thoughts. As a parent showing love, I think there are times when we need to rebuke our children and do it in a loving manner. I don't want my kids to smoke, but I'm not going to embarrass them in front of other people or their friends. So that's just one example that came to mind. I'm struggling with this idea of um, we have to use our own moral compass to determine when someone should be publicly rebuked. Um, because I think people that are actively engaging in cancel culture over whatever they are passionate about um, would all say that they're doing what's morally correct. And so I'm just, how do you think like an individual finds that balance between speaking out and rebuking when necessary and, and holding it in? when maybe it's not not for the best, when I think it can, for most people, it always feels like maybe that's the best option. I think another lesson in this is, if, if in thinking about saying something that we think may be positive or whatever, rebuking someone else, we have to look at our own motivations and really understand that this that that's that's not an excuse that we're using or something like that because our true motives are something that are really 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 central in this. Other other folks. I, I, um, I, I wonder also, um, in addition to the social impact, how we think about this on kind of an internal spiritual level, we wouldn't call, like if someone had said something we found disgusting and we decided we didn't want to be followers of theirs anymore, we wouldn't exactly call that canceling. Um, it would kind of be using our discretion as to who we spend our time with, who we admire and who we don't. And I wonder like on an internal subjective level, of judgment, how we think about something that would, wouldn't be called canceling, but um, would be kind of using our discretion. That's one. And the second is, is how we relate to um, 
there's such a range of issues that people get fired up about. Today, it's like if someone says something racist, for some, they're out. Something sexist, they're out. In the Jewish community, if someone is found had tweeted, they tweeted something anti-Israel, they're out. So it's like people are very excited about different issues. And how do we kind of hold a space where someone feels kind of level three passionate about someone else? For someone else, it's their nine. And really, they can't connect on that. And it's also even more complicated than that. You say if someone else says something against Israel. Well, it, it could be they say something against a particular political thing that they don't consider as against Israel, but someone else who has the other view would consider it that way and, and be angry. So it gets even more complicated. And in the culture of hate that's been going on, that, that, that sort of problem's been escalating. It sounds like in Israel as well as in the U.S. I, I just to add one other layer to that, that what about the historical shifts in, in norms? Someone who is 80 years old, 40 years ago, made sex jokes in the office, and that was the norm. Um, and today, like, you would be out if you went anywhere near that. Like, and how do we think back to the past around things that were appropriate and aren't appropriate? At what, like, what's the line when we say, okay, that was a different era? You know, yeah, I think Dr. Zeus is an excellent <laughs> exa example yeah. of that. <laughs> yes, luckily, the ones that came off the shelf weren't the, the best ones, right? So, mm -hmm. so <laughs> at least in my opinion. <laughs> um, gosh, there's so much important stuff to discuss here. Um, uh, to start with Eileen, I think I so agree with you. I have five children, thank God, and <laughs> ranging in age from almost 21 till 10. And um, it's such a delicate balance, especially as a, an Orthodox religious uh, mother, what I want to communicate and how I want to communicate it and um, how I speak around them. Um, it's such a powerful, it's such a powerful topic. Um, if I speak, I, I can, I'm concerned as an Orthodox feminist, if I speak too much negatively about, um, about um, the rabbinate in Israel or about what women's places, and well, they'll be turned off. And so how do I balance that? And so, yes, I think that there is, um, in the world of parenting, this is um, something very, very significant. And of course, uh, there's a place, there's a place for, I think all the good parenting books talk about how to, um, how to, at the same time, um, help them, but also uh, sometimes there's a need for, for that criticism. Um, and we, we don't know if we're successful until they themselves have become parents. <laughs> okay, so I have some time. <laughs> Still have a few more years to, to do some good work. Um, Kayla, I agree with you. Even as I said the word, our own moral campus, I said to myself, hmm, not sure that really works. Um, but um, I want to believe that this pasuk, this verse of um, don't, hate, don't, don't hate your fellow in your heart and rebuke them, but don't incur guilt. There's something about that saying do yourself introspection and I want to believe in the goodness of you know of human beings being able to um, unfortunately we see many who can't um, but I, I hope that we can if more of us learning can have that positive effect um, I'll I see that the Israel topic came up but with a few people and it's um, since I'm sitting here in, in Israel, um, I'll say that I, you know, I'm someone who really tries to 
not be like in those that first image I showed you of the red and blue feed. I really try to read both. I try to read different kinds of voices. There are some that I can't, and I'm sure for all of us, there are just some that it's just too upsetting and you have to also protect yourself. Um, but I think that for instance, when, and I, and I really agree with what um, Mike had said also, um, I think that uh, when, you know, the, what, what is the purpose? What is it, why is this being done, right? And so um, is, it, is it, of course we know that sometimes people have good intentions in what they're doing. But when it comes, for instance, to Israel, and you could really apply this to a lot of topics, um, is it that um, that you're only is it that you're only criticizing, okay? Or um, can you also find some positive to say when it's the place to say something positive? And I think I look for that balance when I when I read uh, colleagues who are super, who spend a lot of time criticizing Israel and Israel. And I have plenty of criticism, <laughs> but I'm very careful how I speak about it on social media um, because I know that it has a ripple effect and we have to think about that. And so even if we think we're doing that for the good, um, if all the words about it are negative that come out of our mouths and out of our uh, screens, it has an effect. So that's just my two cents on that, um, which hopefully isn't too disagreeable. Uh, <laughs> but feel free to disagree and we can talk about it because that's the whole point. Um, I hope I answered everything. I know uh, Rabbi Shmuley talked about the, the generation issue. Um, I think um, I think with that one, you know, it's so funny. It just depends on where you know, what your perspective is. As a woman, you know, it might have been fine 40 years ago, but you know, I don't I don't know that they need to. They certainly shouldn't be doing it today, even if it was acceptable 40 years ago. Um, but uh, then the question is, how do we, like Dr. Seuss, what do we do with these? with these books, which came from a certain time. Um, and uh, these are big questions. And I think uh, I are on the side of being a little more, um, trying to be a little more sensitive to where something's coming from when it's being said, just like we did today with the sources. This is coming from biblical times. This is coming from Talmudic times. They had a different sense of how to, of, of the place of women, but I can take the wisdom in it and say, you know, I'll, uh, I'll work on the other stuff. I think there's another aspect too, and that is the aspect of redemption. Because <laughs> someone said something 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, if, 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 if there's a learning and there is a change, we have to be able to, to, to that seems to be a real challenge on, on that. I think we're facing a lot of ways politically and other things today. Is is what is the level of redemption needed? Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this wonderful sheer, and thank you all so much for joining us. Can't wait to continue our learning together more this week. Have a great day. Great night in Israel. Thank you. <laughs> Be well.